Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell, along with Blake Watson, and tonight we're going to sit down and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. Blake, how are you this evening? I am fantastic, sir. Yourself? Not doing too bad. I mean, after a couple of weeks of just primarily focusing on softball, ready to get back into the baseball situation, and I guess after not being able to watch the Reds for a few days, I'm going to ask you just how did the Reds look over the last few days and what seems to be their problem this week? Oh, it's, it's more of the same. They just can't pitch. Um, Luis Castillo had one really good outing a week or so ago and then was awful again this weekend against the Brewers. Um, they get a good start and then the bullpen struggles. Um, it's it's tough too because you think about it, you know they've got the top two averages in baseball right now belong to guys that play for the Cincinnati Reds. And Nick Castellanos leads baseball with a like three fifty six average is what I saw, um, and then uh, Jesse Winker's right behind him. I mean, two guys that if the team was competitive would be legitimate MVP candidates, and it's just not the case. Um, it's kind of tough to tough to figure out how they get better while you're going. You know what I mean? Like in the middle of the season, without adding a piece to that to that uh, pitching staff. Well, from what I understand, Jesse Winker has just been outstanding over the weekend. Oh yeah, he hit three home runs the first game against the Brewers. Um, hit one in the second game and hit another in the third game. I mean, Jesse Winker's hitting 355 right now with 13 home runs. He's second in baseball on average, tied for fourth in home runs and top 30 in RBIs. He is first in baseball in OPS with just over a 1.09 OPS. Um, Jesse Winker is blossoming into, you know, a legitimate all-star caliber hitter. Um we always kind of knew he had it in him. We were never never really sure if he was going to be good enough to play outfield every day. In, re- in reality, it would be better for the Reds if they had, you know, the, the DH every day, um, But which we all kind of expect in the next collection of bargaining agreement. That's going to happen. Um, but, yeah, man, the dude can just flat-out rake, and he plays the game the right way. He's always into it. Like, he plays hard. He's, a, you know, he's grown into a little bit of a leader for his team, and he's doing this out of the leadoff spot. He's got 13 home runs out of the leadoff spot. Offensively, the Reds have been fine. They've got some obvious holes that could be fixed and fixed pretty easily. We were just talking about one before we started, but um, at shortstop. But, you know, when you got two guys in Castellanos and Winger that are hitting it the way they're hitting it, your problem isn't on the offensive side of the ball. they got to pitch better, man. Well, I'm going to put you inside the Reds' front office for the next few minutes and let you choose who you're going to go after because the Reds are off tonight and they play tomorrow. They start a series with the Washington Nationals. The Washington Nationals currently are in last place in the Eastern Division of the National League. So when you look at that team, a lot of people feel like it's not going to be very much longer before the Nationals start to sell off pieces and parts of their squad and start rebuilding. So, we brought up the one position that the Reds are going to be looking for in a shortstop, which immediately you turn your attention towards Trevor Story. 
But they've also got a hole in their starting rotation, and Washington's got a guy there that everybody feels they're going to be getting rid of here in the next month, and that is Max Scherzer. So if you're in the the front office of the Cincinnati Reds, and you can pick one of those two players to pick up for the rest of the season, who do you go after? Uh, I think it has to be Scherzer. Um, I think... You know, as much as I would love to have Trevor Story, Trevor Story is one of my favorite players in baseball that doesn't play for the Reds. I love the way he plays the game. You know, you don't have many shortstops that do it as consistently as he does in the game. I mean, he's a 25 home run, 280 hitter almost every year with a, and he's a plus defensive player. Um, that's a guy that they don't have. They can't create on their roster right now. Um, so that, from that perspective, I think, I, I love the idea of acquiring Trevor Story. Uh, Max Scherzer, I almost said Steven Strasburg, but Max Scherzer is a guy, like, I think as, as the Reds are currently constructed, the way they're going, I think he helps them more right now. Um, but I think he's also, in, in the starting rotation and in the pitching in the pitching staff altogether, I think what Scherzer does for you is easier to recreate in the fact that they've got to find a way to get Luis Castillo on track. Like, they have to. I don't care. You could acquire Shane Bieber and Max Scherzer, and if Luis Castillo is still junk, you're not going to be as good as you should be. Um, so that should be priority one, A, two, three, B, four. Every priority the Reds have should be figuring out what's wrong with Luis Castillo. Um, in reality, if I, if I were running the Reds, what I'd probably try to do is get multiple legitimate bullpen arms. Um, I think that's the spot that they're hurting the most. I was listening to, to somebody over the weekend, it might have been Mo Egger, talking about Carson Fulmer and that at bat against Buster Posey. Oh. The Reds are down one to nothing in the ninth. TJ Antone's warm and you leave Carson Fulmer out there. Yes. And You're- less than forty eight hours later Carson Fulmer was DFA. So what what are you doing? If if Carson Fulmer is the guy you want in that spot, you can't DFA him a two two days later. And if he's not the guy you want in that spot, he can't be out there. Obviously, TJ Anson's one of the best relievers in all of baseball. That dude is unhittable. He he should probably be starting, to be honest with you. But his stuff is completely unhittable. But he can't throw every time out. So they've got to get dudes going. Lucas Sims has got to get better. Amir Garrett's got to get better. You know. Trading Rysel Iglesias, while I was not a Rysel Iglesias fan, has hurt them because he is a proven, legitimate, major league bullpen arm who gets dudes out. That They don't have enough of those guys in the bullpen. I also think one of those bullpen arms could be in the system. I would not be shocked if they stay close to 500 if quickly Hunter Green is on this team in a, in a bullpen capacity um, because he is lights out right now at double-A. And he is, his stuff translates tremendously to a short spin as a bullpen arm. And then you go into next year, you're stretching back out. Um, but I, I would go after the pitching, um, but I would go after it not from the starting staff, probably from the bullpen. Blake, I, I'm confused about one thing that has to do with the Reds. You know, when you, you look at the Indians and you look at the way that they're constructed, it's pitching, pitching, pitching. And the pitchers that they bring in and bring up 
are not pitchers that they have drafted into their organization. Some are, most aren't, but they are constantly coached by pitching coaches throughout the Indians organization, including the pitching coach at the major league level, Carl Willis, and they always seem to be able to bring out the best in these pitchers. Now, certainly they're, they're hit and miss on some. For example, Trevor McKenzie has been sent down, but for the most part, especially the relief pitchers over the years, and it's been a solid, a solid core over the years, Carl Willis has been able to take anybody that they have brought in and make them produce at the major league level. What I've always heard out of the Reds organization is that their pitching coach is one of the most outstanding in baseball, yet for the last two years that he's been there, Blake, you can't name me one consistent reliever that they have had. So why is it that the pitching coach with the Reds constantly has praise heaped upon him, and you never hear a word about Carl Willis in Cleveland. Well, first off, because Derek Johnson's a better pitching coach. Um, that's, that's Why? Why, more. Why is he a better pitching coach if he can't ask develop the, a pitcher? As the pitchers. Trevor Bauer worked with both of them, right? Trevor Bauer pitched for Cleveland underneath your guy, and he came to Derek Johnson, and he won a Cy Young under Derek Johnson. Um, he would have, he would have won that, a Cy Young in, in Cleveland also. I don't, I mean, I don't think he would have. Because part of that is Trevor Bauer being as analytical as he is. And, and, and the and, perfect and marriage between what the Reds are doing with the driveline program and hiring Kyle Bodie. But where and, was he allowed to develop that, Blake? Because in Arizona they got rid of Trevor Bauer for doing that. He came to Cleveland and Carl Willis was one of the guys that decided that they would let him be Trevor Bauer. So when he went to Cincinnati, he was already ingrained in all of that stuff. A hundred percent, but the success was not the same. He was really oh. good in Cleveland. He was extremely he was, good in Cleveland. He came yeah, to he the Reds really, as a polished pitcher. A hundred percent. I'm not saying that it was just the perfect marriage of those two. Same thing with Sonny Gray. He was being passed off from the Yankees. They gave him away for a bucket of baseballs, and he's been pretty good. He was actually really good for two years. He struggled a little bit this year, and a lot of that's probably attributed to the back injury. But um, no, and I would I would argue that you know I already said the name T.J. Antone. T.J. Antone is as consistent a, a major league reliever as there is right now. Um, he's really, really, really good. I think the problem is. He just doesn't have the guys. I don't care. We talk about this all the time. Uh, it's not about the X's and the O's in baseball. It does not matter how good of a coach you are. If the dudes can't do what you want them to do, it doesn't matter. So they, 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 the Reds front office made a conscious choice last year to get worse in the bullpen. They made a conscious choice to, tr- to trade away their most polished reliever, and then let another polished reliever in Archie Bradley walk away. Now, Archie Bradley struggled quite a bit in Philly this year, but he's also been hurt. Um, so they, they made the decision to let two legitimate big league arms go and not replace them with other legitimate big league arms. There are numerous guys that have come through this, this system that are like, oh, they've got a shot. Well, it doesn't matter how good the pitching coach is if the guy cannot locate his secondary pitches for strikes. Like, the pitching coach can do every tweak and trick in the book. If the guy can't do it, he can't do it. Um, 
So the, 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 the real test for me is when guys like, I'm going to throw up the name Robert Stevenson out there, who was with the Reds for a few years. He's with Colorado now, and he is struggling there just now. Obviously, everybody struggles pitching in Colorado, but he's struggling there just like he struggled in Cincinnati for the same reasons. He doesn't have command of his pitches. Cannot throw different pitches for strikes in different counts. So uh, I, I think it's not necessarily – I think Derek Johnson's really good. I don't think it's on him necessarily that the pitching staff is a better. I think they actually expected him to do too much with the little bit of talent they have in that back end of the bullpen. I mean, outside of Antone, Sims, and Garrett, and Garrett struggled, they're not – really very talented um so i i just don't know and you got guys like jeff hoffman who is a cast off from somewhere throwing starting games for you um i mean tyler malley had a really bad start over the weekend but other than that he's been probably their most consistent starter and he's a Derek johnson guy he was not thought of very highly in this organization until Derek johnson got a hold of him um so I, I don't know. I mean, not not to take anything away from the guy in Cleveland, because they have obviously put out pitcher after pitcher that can get it done. Starter, bullpen, it doesn't matter. Guys that come through that system have been really good. But I think that's more about the talent level of those guys than it is about the pitching coach himself, if you know what I mean. No, I, I understand exactly what you mean. But I'm, I'm going to throw out two names to you right now that I think are are names that that need to be talked about out of Cleveland. For example, Brian Shaw. Brian Shaw is a guy that was an outstanding reliever in Cleveland, decided to leave. He was a free agent. The Indians didn't want him back. He, he left. He went out to Colorado. He was an outstanding reliever in Cleveland, was next to nothing in Colorado. He's come back to Cleveland and gotten under Carl Willis again, and he's become a very, very serviceable reliever, somebody that's throwing up in the high 90s now, and he didn't do that in Colorado. And I want to throw out two other names. Uh, Chad Allen, who was the Indians' outstanding reliever, did the same thing, ended up going out to California. His career is over with the Angels. Andrew Miller who came to Cleveland. Yes, he was a serviceable reliever before he came to Cleveland. He became an outstanding reliever when he was in Cleveland and immediately signed on to St. Louis. Nobody's heard of Andrew Miller since. You know, I can continue to go down and down the line of these guys that when they were under Carl Willis, they were an outstanding pitcher. And what I'm saying about the Reds is, I don't understand why Derek Johnson is getting the accolades that he does around the city and around the country as being an outstanding pitching coach when you can't name me one pitcher that this guy has made better. Oh, I, I just did. Uh, the easiest one is Sonny Gray. Sonny Gray um, was an outstanding pitcher in Oakland before he went to New York, and now he's back to where he was with Oakland. But I don't know how you can put that on Johnson. I, and I, I also would say Bauer as well, for sure. Like, again, Bauer was really good before he got to Cincinnati. Really good. Bauer was not a $40 million a year pitcher before he got to Cincinnati. If he didn't win that Cy Young and put together the season he put together last year, he would have gotten a big contract. But it wasn't nothing like what he did before. And he talks about Derek Johnson being the reason. Like, he, that's from – who knows more about pitching, you, me, or Trevor Bauer? It's Trevor Bauer. So what he says, I believe. Um, 
and then again, Mally, Antone, those guys are legitimate big leaguers now, and they, they all talk about Derek Johnson. If that's the case, if Derek Johnson is so good, then David Bell needs to be fired. Again, I, I do not love David Bell as a manager. I'm not a fan. But I, I go back to what I was just saying a few minutes ago. I don't care who the manager is. I don't care. The manager does not matter. The players are the reason you win and lose in baseball games. Now, can a can the greatest manager of all time, you hired, I don't know, Casey Stengel or Sparky Anderson or whoever, and you've got a really good team, can they win you a ball game or two over the course of 162 games? Absolutely. Absolutely. But can they take you from a 75-win team to a 100-win team? The manager does not matter that much. Um and I argue, actually, have an older guy that lives next door to me. He is the biggest David Bell hater in the world every day. You see what <laughs> David Bell did last night? I'm like, you know, what did you expect him to do? Well, he went to TJ Antone and he blew it. Well, that's his best guy. What is he supposed to do? If he goes to his best guy and his best guy can't get dudes out, how is that on the manager? I don't understand this cry in baseball for firing managers. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the Reds are way more talented than they played to to this point in the season. Now, they've had some, you know, lingering issues. Lorenzen still hasn't thrown. Uh, Moustakis has missed time. Senzel has missed time. Akiyama's missed time. Votto is out a month. Like, they didn't go, they went into the season without a friggin' shortstop on the roster. I mean, I, I just don't understand how any of this can be directly attributed to David Bell's management being the reason the Reds aren't good. To me, the big thing for managers in baseball is as long as the dudes are responding to what you say, we saw it with Dusty at the end or whatever in Cincinnati, it, it, the message just starts to wear thin. If you have the same group of guys listening to the same manager and it hasn't been successful, I would agree with that. I don't think the Reds have put him in the greatest decision, greatest situation to succeed and expect him to, to make, you know, to make a diamond out of a turd. And it's, it's not, it just doesn't work that way. You're running out of lineup with Scott Heineman in it. And I love Kyle Farmer, but Kyle Farmer is not an everyday shortstop in the big leagues. He's just not. Like, he, it's just a bad baseball team at certain spots, and you can't have that. We went into the season thinking, you know, the Reds have a really deep lineup. They're going to be good one through six, seven. And it just hasn't been the case. They've been good one, one and two with Winker and Castellanos. And outside of that, they've been well below average. Um, I, I would argue maybe, you know, Tucker behind the plate's been a little bit better than average offensively compared to what you expected. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I, I would, I would not lose sleep if the Reds fired David Bell tomorrow, but I also wouldn't be the first one standing at Great America Ballpark calling for his job either. I, I really believe that David Bell will be the first manager fired in baseball this year. There hasn't been one as of yet, and usually around the 4th of July, you start getting managers that are fired somewhere in between Memorial Day, which is coming up next weekend, by the way. And the 4th of July, you start getting managers fired in baseball. It's around that 60 to 75 game mark. And I, I really truly believe David Bell will be the first one. The way this team looks on the field, Blake, they have no energy, no spark, nothing. 
It's almost like they have to manufacture it themselves. And I think that's what a manager does. A manager can do that and instill belief in his players. And I don't think David Bell is that type of manager. Uh, I would, I, I agree with that. I don't think he's the big rah-rah guy either. Um, but I think you look back at the first week of the season and, you know, Amir Garrett comes out, the Reds are some bat-flipping sons of guns and or some crap-talking bat-flipping sons of guns or whatever he said. Nick Castellanos growling in everybody's face. You know why they were had energy then? They were winning. That's what creates energy on a baseball team is being competitive in games, winning games, and, and, and you know, having a shot to win every time you go out. When you go out and Luis Castillo gives up six runs in the first two innings and the game is over, where's, how are you going to have energy? When you go out and, and, and you're down nine to one before you're nine to nothing before you swing the bat, the energy can't come. I don't care. I don't care if your manager is delivering speeches like Martin Luther King Jr. Well, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to try to compare David Bell to Terry Francona. Please don't get me wrong when I say this. But the one thing I will say about Terry Francona is he will not sit out there and let a starting pitcher take a beating like David Bell has done on several occasions this year. It has become apparent, and, and what's funny is, is that the Indians announcers have noticed something extremely different with Luis Castillo's motion that they swear up and down is his problem, but I've never heard anybody else say anything about it, and that is his glove, when he gets into his motion, points towards third base, and it doesn't point towards the mound, which throws him off balance in his motion. And I've heard a lot of people around Cleveland say that, especially when the Reds and the Indians have played, that they think that is, that is his problem. But, you know, when you look at it on TV and you try to, you try to pick it out, they're absolutely right, it does. But nobody in the Reds organization seems to think that that's a problem because they've never, ever tried to fix it as far as I'm concerned or even address the situation. But Luis Castillo, I mean, the other day, Blake, they let him stand out there for four innings and just take a beating. Francona would have gone out there in the second inning and made that a bullpen day. You've yeah, got to I mean, put your I, players in the best situation to win. That's what I'm saying. And Bell's well, not yeah, doing that. I, I mean, I agree with that, and, but I also see the point of you want to see if he can get himself going on his own. Like, I can see both sides of that. I completely agree, and I probably would go get him myself. Um but I also see justifying in the in the dugout, hey, the game's over, basically. Let's see if he can work through as much of this as we can. Um, I, at some points in a baseball game, you know, you got to punt, right? you got right. to try to win a series. And that may have been the case, too. I don't remember specifically what the bullpen looked like that day as far as who was available, who could go multiple innings. Obviously, if you got, you know, you only got three guys that you really trust to get out, you're not going to throw one of those dudes out there in a game. You're losing seven to one. That's pointless. Um, well, let me ask you this. Do you believe, or let me ask it to you this way. Do you believe the Reds front office believes the way the pitching staff is constituted right now, set up, that they can really win this division? I think they did going into the season. I don't think they do right now. Um, 
I, I think going into the year, they believed that it was good enough because they thought they were going to hit quite a bit better. And, and, you know, realistically, all you lost was Bauer and Iglesias. Bradley was only there for the last, you know, month or so of the season last year. Um, well, I guess it wasn't even that long in a month, in a two month long season, but, um, I think, you know, they expected the staff to be better. Um, but it's just not. And I think they're realizing that now. Well, I mean, yeah, and, and I think, I agree with you. I don't believe that the front office believes they can win this thing. So it's time to start dipping into the minor leagues, grabbing people off the waiver wire, making little minor deals like the Indians front office would do to bring in relief pitching to help this situation along. And well, they've tried. They, they have tried. They brought in, I mean, they DFA'd Sal Romano. They brought in Heath Henry. They brought in Ryan Hendricks. They brought in other dudes. It's just kind of the same, different face, same outcome is what it's been. Um, they, they, they've moved some pieces around. The only pieces in that bullpen that are exactly the same as when the season started are the three that I've mentioned, and I think Sean Doolittle. Um, everybody else has been up and down, moved around, um, and they just haven't found the right combination yet. You know, the one thing they talk about in Cleveland is the competitiveness in the starting rotation amongst the pitcher them, the pitchers themselves. Shane Bieber, Zach Plezak, Aaron Savali. Those three stand at the top of the dugout when they're not pitching and watch the other one pitch. And now it's Sam Henches. They talk to each other. They explain to each other what they're doing against certain players on the opposing team. And when Bieber goes out and pitches a great game, Plezak wants to go out and do the same thing, and Savali wants to do the same thing. And I'm not sure if the Reds in their staff have that sort of a cohesiveness. And I'm not saying that's the greatest thing in the world, but I can remember years ago when it was Kluber and Bauer on the staff, along with um, uh, Carlos Carrasco, those three at the top of the order, and they would do the same thing. And ideas would germinate and competitiveness would be there between those three that they all wanted to be had friendly competition and outdo the, the starting pitcher from the day before. I don't see that on the Reds. When I watch the Reds, I see Luis Castillo down at the end of the dugout talking with other players that aren't even affiliated with pitching. I see Sonny Gray sitting out in the bullpen. I see I see the other pitchers, for example, Malley, uh, I know he's been hurt, but you don't see those guys together in the dugout. Am I wrong, or have you seen it before where they're actually sitting together and discussing what their situations are? Well, it's funny because you say that, and I would think that every time the Reds have ever been good, and especially from a starting staff standpoint, you've heard those same things. In 2010, when it was Latos, Cueto, Bailey, those guys, Bronson Arroyo, Mike Leak, when the five starters made every single start save the one doubleheader day from a rainout, um, it, it was always that. All year they're talking about all these guys just want to outdo each other. And they only talk about it when, when a staff's really good. Um, it doesn't happen when, when a staff's bad. Now, 
Is that the reason it doesn't happen? Is it because the staff bad or is the staff bad because it doesn't happen? I don't know. Um, it definitely doesn't seem like it's happening with this group. Although you, you, you talk to anybody in that dugout or you hear from anybody in that dugout, it seems like the, that team really enjoys being around each other. The whole group. Um, you talk to, you hear Nick Cassianos talk about it all the time. Like this is the first team I've ever been on where everybody genuinely likes each other. And that's good and bad because I have always been a believer in a little bit of a, uh, malcontent. In your, in your dugouts, not a bad thing. It'll keep people on edge. Um, you know, the ability to call each other out and say, hey, you didn't do that right or whatever is a good thing. Um, but I don't see that competitive fire with this, with this starting staff. But I really more attribute it to the fact that they just haven't been good enough to have it. Like they haven't put the string together three or four straight really good starts where dudes could start competing. Um, if, I, I think if that happened, if you know you went two times to the rotation and everybody went five, six, seven innings, two, three run ball, you would see that start to happen on its own. Um, I think that's a natural progression when you know a guy's throwing well. Is hey, I want to match what he's doing. Um, I don't think that it, it's something that is. That, that ha- I've never seen or heard from it happening on a bad team with a bad starting rotation. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I look at the Indians, and the Indians lost a game yesterday that they should have won, and it was because their pitching didn't come through. James Karinchak finally had a bad outing. Uh, that kid has been about as outstanding as you can be over the last year, last year's shortened year, and this year. Just an outstanding pitcher, and yesterday he finally had a bad outing, and you can't get upset about it. You, you've got to understand the relief pitchers are going to do that, but you want them to be at their best not, at least 90% of the time, and maybe that's hard to believe but and, and hard to actually expect from a relief pitcher, but that's what they've got to be. 90% of the time, your relief pitchers have to be successful in order for you to be a good ball club. And yesterday they weren't, they just, he just wasn't that. And on top of that, the Indians have lost Francisco Reyes now for about five to seven weeks with an internal oblique strain. Well, you hear about those oblique strains, Blake, and now all of a sudden it's an internal oblique strain. You know, growing up, I never even heard of an oblique strain, and now all of a sudden it's the most common injury next to the ACL in baseball. Yeah, that's... Soft tissue injuries are, are a absolute uh, killer in baseball right now. Um, and that's that oblique. I pulled it myself. I actually have, and it's it's a painful one. There's you can't get any kind of rotation. So swinging a bat or throwing a pitch is borderline impossible. Um, it, it's a tough one, but you're right. Like it's it's kind of like turf toe was in the '90s, right? You never heard about it until Deion Sanders got it. Yeah, and then everybody was coming down with turf toe, like. It's one of those. It's one of those injuries that used to just be called a pulled muscle, and now they have a name for it, so they talk about it all the time. Um, it's it's still it's a really tough injury to come back from because you can feel completely fine, go out and do something, and it's 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 like pulling a hamstring. You never know it's fully healed until it, it just doesn't happen for a week after you're healed. Um, it's a tough one, and you're right, dead on about the ninety percent with relievers, man. Relievers, that that that's a tough job, and they've got to be ready every single day. And, and you know, again, like I talked about earlier, how many times have we seen a manager in a tough spot 
even in the playoffs, go to his best guy, and he just can't get it done. Hey, the guys holding the bats are getting paid too, right? Like, yeah. it's it, 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 it's tough, man. That's why, you know, you look back at guys like Mariano Rivera that were so special. The fact that he did it as well as he did for as long as he did and as many high-pressure situations as he did is absolutely unbelievable. Um, with basically one friggin' pitch. It's, it's unbelievable, man. So it, it's a tough job, and I don't, you know, and most of them are not, most guys that are relievers, and it's less so nowadays than it used to be, um, are not really born relievers, right? They're starters that can't cut it, so they become relievers. Um, every once in a while, you'll see a guy like an Aroldis Chapman who just throws so friggin' hard that he can't start. Like, there's no way he can maintain that for 200 innings a year. Um, the violence and just the delivery is just, it's, it, it never was a match. But for the most part, it's guys that should probably have been starters at one point in their career that for whatever reason moved into the bullpen. Um, so it's, it's just a tough role, man. It's a tough job, tough role. And obviously, you know, the Indians are way better off in that capacity right now than the Reds are. Well, and, and the Reds are better off as far as the hitting department is concerned. There's no doubt about that. I mean, the Indians finally had to, because of this injury to Reyes, bring up Owen Miller, who's been batting over 400 in the minor leagues, but of course it's only in 15 games. Nonetheless, he's still hitting over 400. Yesterday he came up and went over 4. So, you know, you, you look at that and you say, well, it was his major league debut. Okay, went over 4. We'll see what he does tonight when, uh, they're, they're back at home and are back in Detroit and taking on the Tigers. And most people would say, okay, we're probably going to get some hits against the Tigers coming up tonight. Hopefully that'll be the case because, you know, the Indians are in second place. They're not in bad shape. I mean, when you look at the lineup, you think it's a punch and Judy lineup, and you're absolutely right. It is. It's a terrible lineup. But somehow, some way, Francona has been able to piece this thing together to where they are in the running, and that's, you know, you talk about a manager, and I understand what you're saying, but the only thing a manager can do is put his team in a position to win. And I think that's what Francona is good at. He does put his team in a position to win. For example, yesterday, Blake, and remember, this is an American League team. It's an American League game. They're taking on the Minnesota Twins. And the Indians actually suicide squeezed Cesar Hernandez home in the ninth inning to tie up the ball game. When was the last time you've seen an American League team pull a suicide squeeze in a ball game against another American League team? I seriously don't remember it. I don't either. That's, I didn't realize they did that, especially late in the game. I, I, lo- I love Terry Francona. He's one of my favorite managers of all time. I love the way he manages. I love that he, the guys like him, but he's not too much of a rah-rah guy. Um, and, and he's not too much of a player's manager, but he is a player's manager. So I, I like Terry Francona a lot. He's one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, I think you look back, man, and it, 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 the Reds, you know, the Indians are two, they're in second place. The Reds are still only five games out of first place. Right. I mean, it, regardless, they have overwhelmingly been disappointing so far this year and they're still only five games back so you know you got to thank your lucky stars and realistically i think i still believe if they get hot 
they can, they are as good as any team in the NL Central. I don't think St. Louis is that good. They're only five games over 500. They're not special by any stretch of imagination. They have two really good guys at the corners in, in Arenado and Goldschmidt, and, and Jack Flaherty's a stud. But outside of that, everywhere else on the team, they're just okay. Um, I think you go by, position by position, the Reds have better players um, than, than St. Louis. I mean, it, it, I don't. I just they, the big thing is getting the starting rotation going. Getting free Luis Castillo is the biggest piece to the Reds being competitive the rest of the year because I think if he figures it out, I really believe you'll start to see some of the stuff that you saw that you're talking about in Cleveland with the guys competing. I really do. I think he's kind of the guy that stirs the pot for them as a pitching staff. I want to, I want to go back to St. Louis here in a second, but one more item on, on the Indians here, and it's fairly interesting. I'm contractually obligated every week to blast Jake Bowers, and, uh, I'm not, I'm going to fulfill that for my weekly tirade. Jake Bowers again has got to go. It, it's, it, it, without a doubt, he has to go, and it's interesting that Yu Chang is starting to hit the ball now. And, and Francona, again, he's let the kid in there, he's let the kid play, and Yu Chang is starting to hit the baseball now. But Bobby Bradley, the Indians first baseman down in AAA Columbus, he's 24 years old, he's, he was a three for four day yesterday, and hit solo home runs in the second and eighth inning. The guy's hitting 350 on the year. He's driving home runs for Columbus. I realize they've only played 15 games, but for crying out loud, Jake Bowers in 15 games had one hit, and we're continually playing him. So let's bring up Bobby Bradley, let him play first base along with Yu Chang, and let's just call it a day and finally get rid of this Jake Bowers experiment. Now, back to St. Louis. Oh, go ahead, Dave. <laughs> I just want to say, I just looked up baseball reference. He's actually only hitting 200 this year. Yeah, well, who? Bowers? Bobby Bradley. Oh, Bobby Bradley? He's hit 200 at AAA. I'm looking at him. He's hit 350 when he's got 16 multi-homer games in his career and six homers on the season. He's got six home runs on the season, batting 200 and 17 games. That's what, that's what baseball reference has. So that's, that's like my, that's like the godsend. Yeah, that's your, your, your godsend. Yeah, I know. Um, but, you know, hey, all right, let's take a look at St. Louis now. Did you see the play yesterday where St. Louis let the ball roll up the third base line and picked it up and Phil Cuzzy called They thought it was foul and he called it fair. I did not see it live, but I was literally on the phone with one of my really good friends, a, a fellow sports information director, Kevin Lanky from Rose Holman, and he went absolutely bananas. We were talking on the phone as he watched it happen live. He went nuts. That is maybe the worst call in the history of baseball. Okay. Let me explain it. All right? Because I did not realize this until this morning when Major League Baseball came out and explained it, and it was not the, it was not a bad call. The ball, supposedly, if you go in and you look at the rule book, and you've got to go in and look at the rule book to see this, any part of the ball that is over the line 
means it's a fair ball. It doesn't have to be touching the line. And when the ball being a circle and it rolls on its axis is how they put it, it can be off the line, but the right side of the ball, if you're looking down the third base line, can be over the foul line and still be a fair ball. It doesn't have to touch the line. They said, Major League Baseball's come out and said that this whole idea of the ball hitting the line or touching the line is a fallacy. As long as the ball is over the line, it's a fair ball. Now, when you take that into consideration, I agree. When I first looked at it, I thought, that's a foul ball. But then again, you really couldn't see it because the, the pitcher was in the way. Reyes was in the way. And you couldn't really see if he did pick it up from the, the angle that you needed to see it. But the way Major League Baseball explains it, I guess it was a fair ball, but it was it was a crazy call. I think Major League Baseball is trying to uh, justify well, the bad call. I think they're trying to find a way to justify the bad call. I really do. They're trying to bail out their umpire and use the the gray areas of the rule book to to make it work. Um, you, Nolan Arenado is one of the three or four best defensive third basemen to ever play the game. He is standing directly over the ball. He watches it go foul and then picks it up. Like, he doesn't make that mistake. I would believe the umpire makes the mistake before the player. Like, he literally waits and watches it go past the line and then picks it up so quickly because it, so it can't bounce backwards. Now, you're right. On the replay, you can't see because of the pitcher. Um, but watching the other replay does not look like it bends back towards the line. So I, I don't know how you make that call. I don't. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how I would have been ejected from that game. One hundred percent for sure. I would have been asked to leave the friggin' stadium, not just the play field. They'd have heard me yelling so loud in the in the dug or in the friggin' clubhouse. They would have sent security in there to make me get in my car and drive home. Well, it was interesting over the weekend during the softball tournament. I, I'm sure you probably heard my little tirade in the championship game, but it was going on all weekend long, Blake. These people paid $5 to come in and watch these girls from the five teams, supposed to be six, but ended up being five, play for a regional championship and an opportunity to play in the Division Three National Championship this week in Salem. And they were playing their hearts out. And you've got umpires that are there, Blake. And, and I'm going to say right now that I thought the umpires, for the most part, did a fine job in this tournament. But what upset me the most and was upsetting everybody in the press box are these umpires that think it behind home plate that everybody is there to watch them, and they've literally got to keep everybody in anticipation, wanting to know if it's a ball or a strike. And there were times, Blake, and I am not joking you, this is an absolute fact, that especially in DePaul. DePaul would catch the ball, throw the ball back to their pitcher. The pitcher, as always, would walk around towards the back of the circle and then step on the rubber. And by the time she was heading back to step on the rubber, that's when the umpire would come up with his right hand as to whether it was a strike or not. It was taking forever for them to make the calls. And it, looking at the NCAA representative, I said, 
why do they have to do that? I asked him that in between innings. Why do they have to do that? Nobody's here to watch them. They're here to watch the girls play. And he looked at me and stoically said, I have no idea. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a joke. Um, we see it all the time, right? Like, not just in that tournament. We have umpires that think they're bigger than the game, right? Yes. Just, you're not. The best umpire is one that asks the game. I don't even realize he's out there. Um, they're, they're, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's hard to justify. It's almost impossible to justify. But it makes watching very, very difficult. It makes working a press box extremely difficult. Um, I don't know how many times over the year, this year especially, we've had uh, the wrong count on a on a scoreboard because the umpire took nine years to put it up. Right. We're calling something a ball that he calls strike, and it's just. It wasn't a, for one, it wasn't a strike, but they're just, I don't know, when yeah. they make it about them, it's the worst. Yeah, and, and like I said, for the most part, the umpires did a fine job over the weekend. There wasn't really anything to complain about. Yeah, there were a couple of calls that, you know, could have gone either way, bang, bang, for every team, for every team in the tournament. I'm not just talking about the games that I did, but for every, every team in the tournament. But, what was what everyone was on edge about was the fact that all of these umpires, constantly all of these umpires, were making the late strike calls. And the only way that me and another guy that was doing the, the live streaming uh, for Millican University, um, we could figure out how the umpire was calling a strike was he had just, just this little nod of his head. And we could tell that from up in the press box and knew it was a strike just based upon that. Um, other than that, I mean, the, the tournament was outstanding, had a lot of fun. Um, you know, congratulations to Mount St. Joseph University for finishing second. They took it as far out as they could, Blake, and uh, just came up a little bit short. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at, you look at what that team accomplished this year. Um, you know, I don't know if you've seen the, the College World Series bracket for Division Three or not, but the number one overall seed are the Tigers of DePaul University. Um, they go into that into that into the College World Series with three losses on the year, and two of them are to our, our Lions. I mean, if, if nothing else, that alone should be enough for those girls to go into the rest of their lives, especially those seniors who will never strap it up again. And, and be proud of what they accomplished on the field this year. They did something that that program's never done. Um, winning a game in the NCAA tournament is a big deal. Um, you know, there are hundreds of programs in the country, that, almost 400 softball programs at the D3 level, I bet half of which have never even been to the NCAA tournament. So the fact that they got to go got to avenge a loss in the HCAC championship game to Transylvania, who won the conference championship on our field two years ago against mostly the same group of kids. Um, to, to, to the bad all they got to being the sixth seed in a regional with three top 25 teams. Um, 
a first-round matchup with the number one team in the country, a game you very easily could have won had not been for the, the tough error on the sacrifice bunt for DePaul. Then um, you roar through the loser's bracket, beating ranked team, beating Calvin, who was really good, beating Bellhaven, who was ranked. It sets yourself up with a, with a, in the regional finals against the best team in the country, who very well could win a national championship this weekend. Um, and you beat the brakes off of them in game one. You literally run rule the number one team in the country. Like, that is unbelievable. And they were put in a, a crappy spot. You got to be the first time all season in any capacity, at any college level for, for this type of sport, to play three games in a day is absolutely ridiculous. Yep. That it was a travesty what was done to those girls. Um, there's no chance there should have been a third game on that Saturday. It all happened because Calvin has, they're not allowed to play games on Sundays at Calvin due to their religious beliefs, which we at the mountain, being another religious school, respect. But once Calvin was eliminated from that tournament, it, it should have been, it should have been rebracketed and changed to, to finish on Saturday. Um, yeah. It's just, it, it just wasn't right that way, but, that all being said, they were outstanding, man. Aaliyah Tucker, the region most outstanding player. Um, and she was re- she wasn't even that great offensively. She had a couple of big extra base hits, a couple of home runs. But I mean, she only, she hit under 300 for the tournament. But she was so good defensively and such a leader for that program. If you, and I know you know the program well, but you don't know the Aaliyah Tucker that I know of from four years ago. That kid has grown up so much as a player and as a person. Um, to think four years ago, to think she would have been a leader for your program would, would probably scare some coaches, but she turned into an amazing young woman, amazing softball player. She's going to graduate and go do great things with her life. Um, so proud to have, have been a, even a small part of what those girls did this year, man. Blake, it was... It was heartbreaking in the uh, last inning when Tucker came up, Otto, and then Liv Berger. You knew it was over. They were down nine to two, and you knew it was it was going to be over. And Tucker was crying at her at bat. Otto was crying in her at bat, and Liv Berger, Beth Goddard was giving her the at bat. Uh, as a senior to go up there and play in this regional and Liv was crying and it was, it was heartbreaking to see it. It was heartbreaking to call it, but nobody liked my idea up there in the press box. Hey, DePaul's won two. We've won two. Let's play game five tomorrow. Nobody liked that, that idea. That would have been awesome. <laughs> no, and, and in reality, I think DePaul really was and is the best team in the country. Cammy Henry is so good. I mean, I know at one point on the first game you said you weren't thoroughly impressed with her. The numbers don't lie, man. 23-0, sub-1 ERA. Like, she's a stud. She's so good. And the biggest thing she did was she kept Aaliyah off the bases. She didn't let Aaliyah change the game for us, and that's what needed to happen for us to have a chance to win that. If Aaliyah doesn't go over four, in the championship, the second championship game, the if game, we might win the game. Um, might be headed to Salem, where we'd again 
probably be the worst seat there for some ungodly reason. Um, yeah. But to finish, I mean, if you really look at it, the way they did it this year, we were among the last 16 teams standing in the country. So you want to say you were in the Sweet 16? Say it. Because it's true. Um, it was it was a fun thing to watch, obviously, from afar. I didn't get to travel. Family obligations. And, and the fact that, you know, Beth had, was able to put, uh, put, uh, Berger out there for the last of that, that's a class move. Um, it, it, that program has just run so well between Beth and Dee Dee. They do such a good job. I don't think that's the last time we're going to see that Mount Softball team in a regional final. No, I, I, I agree with you there. I, I think you're going to, you're going to see a lot of great things. From what I understand, they got a great recruiting class coming in. They're happy with the girls that they've got coming in. Obviously, they're upset over losing the five, six seniors that, that will be gone. But, I mean, those girls have really been the heart of this program, and, and it was certainly a fun being a part of it. And, well, we'll be more of a part of it next year and see see what they can do. It's going to be a lot of fun with that team. Absolutely. Well, okay, so the Reds are off tonight. They're going to start a series with Washington tomorrow night. That'll be in Washington. And for the Indians, they are on the road tonight. They're starting up a three-game series with the uh, Detroit Tigers. So it should be a very interesting week for both teams. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, you know, I say it every time, the Reds need to get right week, man. I was really hoping it would be that Colorado-Pittsburgh time frame. And they played better over that stretch. They lost a couple games to the, to the Rockies. They probably shouldn't have. Um, but, man, I, they need to get right. I guess the Nationals are one of the worst teams in baseball record-wise. But anytime you can run out Strasburg and Scherzer and that crew, you got a shot to win games. So I, I don't think that, you know, lineup-wise and that, that the, the Nationals scare anybody. But the Reds just got to figure it out, man. They're, they're really close to still being a good baseball team. They're also really close to tanking and selling parts. Um, so I, 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 these next couple weeks are really vital for what the Reds are going to be, whether they're going to be buyers of the deadline, sellers of the deadline. Because um, they've definitely, if they turn into sellers, they could restock that farm system in a hurry. Um, if you decide to sell the, the trade pieces like new stock as Castellanos and Gray and Antone, like there's some pieces on this roster that teams would – Drool over getting. Um, I think the one guy you can't trade is Jesse Winker, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I just think that, that that could, if if it goes that way, then I think I hope they do right and get, as opposed to a couple years ago where they waited too long to trade those pieces, trade them at the right time and get the biggest bang for your buck. I mean, Nick Castellanos right now, I don't know that anybody would, would turn down adding Nick Castellanos to their, to their lineup. So, I know the Indians would love to have him. Oh, they, yeah. I'd love to have a right fielder <laughs> that, that could hit like that. Absolutely. I mean, that, there's no doubt about it. Before we leave, there's one little story here that just came up. Every team's most indispensable player. Who do you think they say the Reds' most in, indispensable player is right now? Oh. It's Jesse Winker. Yep, you're absolutely right. With Votto, Mustakas, and Senzel on the IL, and Suarez in a season-long abyss at the plate, Winker 
and Nick Castellanos are carrying the Cincinnati offense, but Winker's the guy that has been pivotal from the leadoff spot. So, yeah. What about the Indians? Uh, Jose Ramirez, that's a, that's a no-brainer. Yeah. We lose Jose I Ramirez. I one of the young guys. If we lose Jose Ramirez, I mean, it, it's over, it's done. Pack up the bags and yeah. we'll go to Goodyear. And In reality, we talk about it every year, every, every time we talk about them. They really only got right now on their team two legitimate major league hitters, and that's Jose Ramirez and Fernando Reyes. They've got a couple guys that can play a little bit, but legitimate major league offensive yep. players, those are the two guys. Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, Rosario is not hitting at all right now in left field. So, well, we'll talk about it more next week, Blake. Sounds good, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that's going to do it for this week's Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Be sure to join us again next Monday night at 7 o'clock. For Blake Watson, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good night, everybody.